Well, when I was growing up, like many of you, we didn't have anywhere near the technology that we have today, especially when it comes to entertainment. Uh, when I was little, we, we basically had a large square console TV, and it had maybe three or four channels, and we had a TV guide. The TV guide was entertainment in itself. You know, you just look through and see what, you know, what shows you wanted to watch. And then some of them had a BW after them, which meant they were in black and white. And a lot of the old shows that we would watch were in black and white. But, uh, but as I would watch TV with my sisters, I can remember every now and then uh, the show would be interrupted by the emergency broadcasting system. Remember that? Uh, I did a little research. This system was used from 1963 to 1997, and at that point it was replaced by something called the Emergency Alert System. But it was established to provide the President of the United States with an expeditious way to, pro to communicate with uh, the American people in case of war or threat of war or some grave national crisis. And although the system was never used for a national emergency, it was activated more than 20,000 times between 1976 and 1986 for regional civil emergencies like severe weather hazards and things like that. But whenever they would test the system, the following notice would appear on the screen. And you would hear this message. This will bring back memories for some of you. This is a test. This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcasting system. This is only a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcasting system. The broadcasters of your area, in voluntary cooperation with federal, state, and local authorities, have developed this system to keep you informed in the event of an emergency. If this had been an actual emergency, the attention signal you've just heard would have been followed by official information, news, or instructions. This concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system. Now, that was pretty annoying, that long. I left it on there purposely, but the interesting thing was, by law, it was supposed to be from 20 to 25 seconds, they left it up to the stations, but it had to be a minimum of 20 seconds, that tone, and, and up to 25 seconds. But eventually, uh, because of outcry from people who, like we just experienced, felt it was very awkward, we get the point, is kind of what you're thinking, uh, they changed the law where it could go from 8 to 25 seconds. I left it on there for about 12, which is about half of what it would have been back when I was watching TV as a kid. Uh, but I'm calling this message Tests and Trials. Spiritually speaking, a trial is when the ordinary routine of life gets interrupted. You know, life's going along fairly well, then all of a sudden, beep, you know, something happens that redirects your attention, uh, redirects your focus. And, you know, as annoying as it was when the EBS system would, you know, interrupt Gilligan's Island or Happy Days or whatever shows I was watching, spiritual tests can actually be far more troubling. How should we respond when these trials of life come up? Well, as we continue our study through Hebrews, we left off last time with that famous two verses at the beginning of chapter 12. And I want to invite you to turn back with me to 
chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 3 to 11 this morning, and this is, as it turns out, going to be part one of two weeks that we'll spend on tests and trials. I had intended to go all the way to verse 17, but as I mentioned to our Wednesday night uh, crowd, it, it just, I was about halfway through and I could tell there's no way I'm going to fit this all into one message, so I've divided it uh, into two. But we're, we're talking about, in this series, unshakable faith, trusting God in trying times. And the last time we were together, those first two verses, the reader, I mean, the writer challenged us to finish the race of life strong. And he's going to continue with that same theme of, you know, enduring suffering, not giving up, not quitting when the going gets tough, uh, and talk in general terms about trials. And what he wanted his readers to know, and what he wants us to know uh, in terms of the timeless truth of God's Word, is that our faith will be tested. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen to good people. And uh, the question is, are we going to pass or fail the test? You know, suffering's a reality. And we talked last time about how you lean into suffering. Because you can't avoid it. Uh, it's a fact of life. And so, in this portion of this of the chapter, the writer really focuses on kind of the purposes of trials in our life and, and gives us just some further instruction on how we should respond. So I'm sort of taking the approach of navigating life's trials. Similar theme to finishing the race strong, but when you think about it, as we've seen now for many months, the whole book of Hebrews is about how to withstand a difficult time. He's writing to a group of people, Christians, Jewish Christians to be precise, who were facing a rough time. And it gives them all kinds of reasons and motivations and warnings and so forth to remain steadfast in the faith. And this section of Hebrews really just continues uh, that theme. So we'll call it navigating life's trials. And the first principle that I'd like to point out is we need to remember that trials are a form of training. Trials in life are a form of training. Look at what he says in verse 3. starts out by saying, for consider him. Now, we, we, we need to put it in context. If you remember, at the end of the passage we looked at last time, verse 2, he talks about fixing your eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And he points to him as both an example and a, one who supplies the grace and so forth. And so he's, this, this him here, obviously it's capitalized, so we know this from our English translation, but he's talking about Christ. And so he reminds us to think about him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And often, as we go through trials in life, it can be very helpful when we come across someone who's been there before, right? And we tend to relate to them, and they can give us some insight, and they can help us as we think through it. It just makes it seem less troubling. Well, the writer is saying we have the ultimate example of that in Jesus Christ our Savior. The one who saved us has also been there. And he's experienced far more than we ever had. So as we recognize that trials are a form of training, the first thing he says is think about Christ. You know, that's the first sort of reminder segueing right out of, of verses 1 and 2. It kind of reminds me of the story maybe you've heard uh, the little boy that was on a plane and he was uh, traveling by himself, so he was unaccompanied minor, and he had one of those uh, tags on. 
and he was sitting by a lady, and as the plane was going uh, along, it ran into some turbulence. And I mean, that plane just started shaking and rattling, and it was really serious uh, turbulence. And the lady uh, sitting next to this little boy was quite upset. I mean, just panicking, really terrified. But the little boy was just continuing to play with his toy as if nothing was going on. Finally, she turned to the little boy and she said, Young man, just stop it. Stop having so much fun. How can, you, how can you have fun when this plane is going through all of this shaking? And the little boy looked up at the lady and kind of gently put his hand on her hand. And he said, Ma'am, my daddy's the pilot, and I'm sure he's got all this under control. And I think that's what the writer has been saying from the beginning. He starts in chapter 1 by talking about this express image of God's glory, Jesus Christ, how he's superior to angels, he's superior to anything these suffering Christians might want to revert back to. He's superior to any of the safe havens they might try to run to. And, and he continues that theme all the way up here through chapter 12 when he beautifully, once again, describes Christ. And you know, keeping our eyes on the Lord during trials helps us keep things in perspective. The whole world might be shaking, but God's got this, right? And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Now, this is a, a bit of a, oh, just a, a criticism, really, uh, of them. And it's kind of helpful for us to remember, too. Basically, what he says is, you know what? You've not yet experienced the worst persecution. Some had. Many had been martyred. But the people reading this letter clearly had not. So whatever they were facing, they had not yet faced the ultimate sacrifice, the way both Christ did and some of their contemporaries did. So in other words, what he's saying is it's not that bad. It's not that bad. We need to remember that. And then, uh, like a good preacher, the, the writer here then says, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And then, of course, this is written in the late 60s A.D., before the New Testament was fully complete. And so the main Bible that these people had, especially being Jewish Christians, was their Old Testament. So he's going to quote Scripture. I love this, because we do the same thing today. Sometimes, you know, a preacher might say, or you might come across this thought in your own mind, that, you know what, I forgot, the Bible addresses this issue. And the, the Spirit of God, as you're reading the Bible, will direct you to certain encouraging passages that are directly relevant to what you're facing. And that's why we need to stay in the Word of God. It's the whole counsel of God. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And that's what the writer does here. Understandably, he points back to the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 3. He says, you've forgotten the exhortation, the Word of God, which speaks to you. And then he quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, this passage, as well as the original passage in Proverbs, has gotten a lot of bad press. It's, it's been misunderstood by a lot of people uh, because we have a warped view of discipline in our life today. The fallen nature of man has really messed up the whole idea behind discipline. So let's take a closer look at this word chastening. That's the key word, chastening. In Greek, it's the word paideia. Paideia means training or instruction or discipline. Now here's the interesting thing. It's only used six times in the entire New Testament, and four of them are right here in this passage that we're looking at today. 
all the way through verse 17, actually. And then the, the verb form, paiduo, same word but just the verb form of it, is used an additional three times in this passage. So you've got seven references to this training or instruction. I mean, one thing that is unmistakable is that Hebrews 12, 3 all the way to 17, which we'll look at the rest of it next week, is about training. It's about training. But let's take a closer look at what we mean by training and what this word means, paideia. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3.16. Remember, six times it's used, the noun, four times in our passage in Hebrews, and then two other times. This is one of them. When uh, Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Paideia. So here we have Paul saying, The Word of God teaches us, instructs us, and helps us navigate through life. The same word is applied to trials. So the next time you face a trial, you need to recognize it's a form of training. It's just as much training and instructing us as the Word of God is. Life can be a great a teacher, the idea is. So if we go back to the text, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. So he's making a comparison here, just as a loving father will train his children by instructing them or disciplining them from time to time as needed, so to our Heavenly Father teaches us through the trials of life. It's not about punishment. It's not about punitive things. It's about training. Now make no mistake, sometimes because of the natural consequences of our own sin, we face difficult times. But God is using, not all trials, as we're going to see, are the result of sin. And see, that's the problem that we tend to, to think of when we think of this passage and others and we think of trials in general. We tend to think of God as if he's some kind of a cosmic cowboy up there waiting for us to step out of line. And every flat tire, you know, I had a flat tire coming home from church Wednesday night. You know, new car, and I have a flat tire. And I don't, I'm not sure I responded very well in the <laughs> privacy of my own car. <laughs> you know, the NSA... Uh, People watching my bit bucket probably had quite a laugh at some of the things that came out of my mouth. Mouth, but uh, but that doesn't mean God's punishing me, right? Guess what? Sometimes you run over a screw, which is what I found out happened the next day when I took it and had it repaired. I mean, God's not punishing you. Uh, it's about training. It's, it goes to motive. You know, going back to his analogy here, no dad enjoys sadistically spanking his children. We see the word scourging and we think, oh, this is you know, some evil thing. No, no. I mean, a, a, a dad shouldn't anyway. There are a lot of bad dads out there. I get that. And, and maybe some of you have experienced just a, a, a horrific upbringing and I'm not making, you know, not discounting that at all. But a normal, healthy dad is not going to say, go get the belt, son. I can't wait. You know, this is not what dads do. They're you know, they're trying to train their children. And they don't want their children to do things that are going to be bad for them and hurt them and cause problems for them. So they mold and shape them through a lesson. And God's the same way. He wants us to learn from the trials of life. Trials are a form of training. They're not primarily punitive. They're primarily instructive. 
if you go back to Job, this is a great passage. Uh, really, the theme of Job is all about remembering that God is not a, a retributive God. He's a God of grace. But the, this is, these are the words of one of Job's friends. Remember Job's helpful friends? All they did is just judge him and give him all kinds of bad information. Well, this is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz was completely wrong in assuming that Job's troubles were the result of his own sin. We know that wasn't the case. But there's a grain of truth in what Eliphaz says here because Job's suffering did have a refining effect and cause him to grow personally. Eliphaz said, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but he makes whole. his hands make whole. So again, Eliphaz was saying this in the context of, you really messed up, and so God's going to punish you. But it is certainly true that even though Job's plight was through no fault of his own, it was just fault of the fallen world in which we live, God was using that. And it is true that happy is the man whom God corrects. What is God trying to show us that we can't see lurking around the corner that will help train us? You know, what kind of hot stove is he not wanting us to touch so that we'll burn it? What is he you know, not wanting us to do? We, Wendy and I have really enjoyed uh, on beautiful weather days taking our granddaughter Zoe out to the park. And it is so precious to watch that 19-month-old run and run and run. And uh, there's a beautiful park near our home, and, and it's got this massive big green. It's actually artificial grass, but it's bright and green and soft and big area to play and, and for some reason, Zoe always loves to, you know, she's got this whole huge area, she always loves to run straight for the edge, straight for the steps, you know, straight for the ledge, where, and we have to run, and she is fast, I'm telling you. I mean, I'm, I'm not as spry as I used to be, and trying to catch her before she goes tumbling, and, you know, we're trying to train her to stay within these boundaries. Why? Because we don't want her to fall and bloody her lip or her nose or, or get hurt, Right? And Job was not the first or the last person to find it difficult to rejoice that he was experiencing the Lord's reproofs. And yet that's precisely what we need to do when we face trials. What is God trying to teach us through this? Job, if you remember the end of the story, came away with a much better understanding of our God through the horrific experience that he had. Proverbs puts it this way, the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. Remember, trials are a teacher the same way God's Word is a teacher. But he who disdains instruction despises his own soul. Soul there, just referring to our life, not the eternal aspect of life, but just life. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. Now, when we respond and recognize that trials are a form of training we can learn the lesson that God has for us. When we chafe at them, shake our fist at them, have a bad attitude about them, we're missing out on an opportunity to learn. The anonymous psalmist in Psalm 119 said, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Do you realize no matter what we can face, however terrible it is, it doesn't change God's faithfulness. God never changes. God is immutable. He's as loving today as he was 
in eternity past, <laughs> if you can speak of eternity in a time concept. God is just and gracious and all, all of those things. And so we can, we, we've got to resist the urge to view our trials and somehow view God in light of our trials and think God is changing. God is doing something that's unfair. Or God is, you know, God is just the same God. Everything He does is faithful. And Jesus Himself told the church at Laodicea, which certainly had their share of problems, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. We've talked a lot about that word repent in our midweek Bible study. It just simply means to change the mind. For some reason, because of some bad teaching over the last couple, 300 years, people associate repentance with sin. It doesn't connect uh, intrinsically to sin. In fact, the Old Testament tells us God repented, and of course God never sinned. Repentance just means change of mind. And so when we get chastened, as Jesus was saying here to the Laodicean Christians, we need to, what does God want us to change our mind about? What do we need to change our thinking about? What is he trying to teach us? We need to recognize that trials are a form of training. Think back to your days in school. You know, I can remember, I don't have a lot of memories of school because I, my family moved all the time. By the time I started high school, I lived in 13 cities and 7 states. So my med memories are sketchy, but I remember, very vividly remember my 7th grade English teacher. Her name was Mrs. Lewis, and she was, everybody loved her. She was one of those that just really had fun with the kids. And, you know, in junior high, you like to have fun, and you're starting to get sarcastic and find your way as, in your personality. And, and I was a bit of a clown in class, and, and, but I loved Mrs. Lewis. I remember her, and, but I can remember that she would give these spelling quizzes regularly. And the purpose of the spelling quiz was so that we could learn how to write the words, learn how to spell the words, right? And I can remember she was kind of aloof, and so when we, she would give these quizzes, she would be sitting at her desk. I can picture it just as if it was yesterday. And she'd be reading off a list of words, and of course we were to take out a piece of paper and we were to spell the words, right? But she would say the word, and then she'd be doing something else on her desk, or just she was just kind of, you could tell she was just going through the motions. And I uh, did this two or three times. I did it once, and it got kind of got some recognition. And so I did it a couple more times until she finally put the kibosh on it. But she was so aloof that sometimes she would say the word. So she would say, for example, you know, the next word is discombobulate or some, some seventh grade word. And I would say, how do you spell that? <laughs> and she'd start spelling it. <laughs> and all the kids would laugh, and then she'd catch herself, J.B., you know, and uh, so that went on a couple of times before, uh, before she uh, caught on to me. But what was the purpose of those quizzes? It was to teach us how to spell. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that all of your woes in life are God's way of punishing you. He's not a retributive God. He's a God of grace. The fact is life stinks. Let's just concede the point, Right? We don't need to, you know, argue the case like it's a court of law. You know, we can be, go to the judge. We stipulate, Lord, we get it. The life stinks. We're not going to argue with you about that. The next question is, what resources has God given us to navigate this rough world sold under the curse of sin until he comes back or until we go to meet the Lord if the Lord tarries his coming? God is there to see us through, to lovingly teach us. And we need to trust him. The second principle 
that I see, if we go to verse 7, is we need to respond with the right attitude. Once we understand the purpose of trials, now it's on us to have the right attitude. Notice what he says next. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not chasten? Well, here's that interesting word, endure. Endure. We talked about this last time because it comes up in chapter 12. Now, this is the verb, hupomeno. We talked about the noun form last time, hupomane, which means patience, fortitude, steadfastness. I said it was used 32 times in the New Testament. But the right response to trials is to have fortitude, steadfastness, not anger or blameless or, or bitterness or fear. Uh, if we go back to verse 1, this is where the word first comes up there, and it was kind of the premise for that whole message. Let us run with endurance, that's hupomane, the race that is set before us. So he's using the same word here as it relates to trials, to God's training program. We need to remember that by allowing trials in our lives, God is dealing with us as his children. The way an earthly father, or at least a good one, should deal with his children. Remember that word paideia that we talked about, how it's used four times in this passage, uh, in the noun form, and then two other times? Well, here's, here's one of those four times. Uh, whom the Father does not chasten. But one of the other uh, two times that it's used is in 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Word of God is our trainer. So four in Hebrews 12, the noun, once in 2 Timothy 3, and the only other time it's used, guess where it's used? In the context of fathers and their children in Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, the paideia, and the admonition of the Lord. Um, we need to remember that trials are God's way of training us, and we need to respond with the right attitude. World-class gold medal athletes all have coaches and trainers who help them prepare for the contest. And I can guarantee you, you know, they may not always like their trainers. They may not like the way they push them and challenge them. They may get angry with them, but boy, when that gold medal is draped around their head, who do you think they're looking at with affection and gratitude? The trainer. See, God knows what's best for us. How many times have you been in a situation and something comes to your memory that you've been through before, and you sort of have that aha moment, and you think, ah, I see why God led me on that journey now. It was for this moment. It all makes sense. We've got to resist the urge to be obsessed with the now and instead look at life from a heavenly perspective and recognize that whatever we're going through, even painful times, God knows what he's doing. And he's helping us navigate this old world. The verse that we read uh, this morning that uh, Ken read is from Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 4. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Having the right attitude means remembering that our trials are, by comparison, a light affliction. Now, they don't feel very light. <laughs> you know, when we're the ones going through it, it's painful. But we need to recognize everything is relative. 
And compared to the exceeding eternal weight of glory, it's a light affliction. He goes on in Romans 8 to say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. If we could just latch hold of that and remember it. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, a very famous passage where Paul is pleading with the Lord about his thorn in the flesh, uh, the Lord Jesus answers him and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, the way we should, Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He goes on, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. See, if you want the power of Christ to be manifest in your life, you got to stop trying to handle your trials on your own. He'll let you, you know. You can get bitter, you can get angry, you can say, why me, why now, why this, you know. But it's when we respond with the right attitude that we begin to see the power of God at work in our lives. James put it this way. James is a great book, um, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, James, the Lord's brother. And you're familiar with this famous passage about trials. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, we don't really like the first part of that verse very much, do we? And I think we've misunderstood it to a certain extent. He's not suggesting that you just arbitrarily say that the tough time and trial you're facing is joyful, because it's not. The, the Greek construction here of count it all joy, it's almost like count the points of joy. Like recognize that even in the midst of this difficult thing, Something joyful is taking place. There is always, there are always blessings. There are always some things to be thankful for, and and we need to remember that. You know, it's like the, you know, the dad that says to his son before he spanks him. Now, someday you'll thank me for this, son. And the little boy says, "Well, can't I just thank you now and skip the lesson?" But you know, it doesn't always work that way. Uh, count all the blessings. You remember that old hymn, "Count Your Blessings." you know that hymn? We should sing that sometime. Remember? When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Or are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly. And you will keep singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be disheartened, God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. And then sing the chorus. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. That's good, isn't it? I think that's what James is really saying here. 
trials are tough, but there's a blessing in there. There's a blessing in there. So if we go back to uh, the text, he says, he goes on to say, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers. In other words, all believers face chastening. They face paideia. They face training, the trials of life. But if you're without it, then you're illegitimate and not sons. In Jewish culture, a father would spend much care and patience on the upbringing of a true-born son whom he hoped to make a wealthy heir. And at the time, such a son might have to undergo much more painful discipline than an illegitimate son with no future of honor and responsibility. So just remember, we're, we're not illegitimate. We're sons. We're children of God. And we've all become partakers of God's discipline. Then in verse 9 he says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily in subjection to the Father of spirits? Just as the right attitude toward our earthly fathers is to accept discipline and understand it, understand that it comes from love and a desire to make us better, we should show the same reverence for our Heavenly Father. Now, as you know, I'm teaching from the New King James, which is my version of uh, preference. Some of you may have different versions, but that last phrase that I've highlighted in yellow, or I guess the last line there, Father of Spirits, very interesting. I discovered that's the only time that phrase is used anywhere in the Greek New Testament. And it's given English translators a bit of a problem. What does he mean, the Father of Spirits? And uh, what I've come to and what other uh, scholars have basically concluded is that in the context he's obviously contrasting a heavenly father with an earthly father and father of spirits just means spiritual father so in fact some english translations actually translate it that way our spiritual father so as we repay respect and reverence to our earthly father we should show the same respect to our spiritual father god in heaven and then verse 10 they indeed, for a few days, talking about earthly fathers, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. We need to respond with the right attitude when facing trials. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis, who reminded us, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes we can't hear what God wants us to hear in the midst of our trials because we're too busy talking over him, complaining, right? And yet it's often in that pain that God's trying to teach us some of the greatest lessons of life. I know I've found in, in our journey, Wendy and I found that the people that seem to have the most wisdom, the deepest, richest relationship with the Lord are those who have been tested and tried by life. You know, the ones who have it all together, the perfect ones, who tend to also be somewhat legalistic and look down their noses at you, hard to connect with them. Boy, the, this genuineness of people who've been through the fire, that's, that's the kind of people we want to hang around with. Right? So respond with the right attitude when facing trials. We talked about last time finishing strong, and part of that means recognizing and responding appropriately to uh, trials. And then the third point, which we'll look at <clears throat> today, and then we'll pick up here next week, is we need to remember the goal of trials. We need to remember the goal of tri trials. Now, I don't know why so much of my mind this week went to TV experiences, but 
Uh, I'm sure you've all seen those old car commercials where they, they're showing crash safety tests. Um, and their goal, of course, is to convince prospective buyers that their vehicles are the safest. But, you know, for example, you know, General Motors or Ford, they'll, they'll put two dummies in a car and ram it into a wall. Two dummies. I mean, I wonder if they take suggestions, but, um, I mean, dummies. There will be one dummy behind the wheel and one dummy on the passenger side. Again, not trying to draw any connections here. But the goal is not for them to be mean to the vehicles. These vehicles just come smashing in, and you see those dummies just go flailing about, and they're trying to show uh, whether they can withstand the test. What they're really doing with those crash tests has little to do with the dummies and more to do with the vehicles. They want to see how safe they can make their vehicles. They want to see what flaws need to be corrected. They want to see what weaknesses need to be shored up. They want to see how much their cars can withstand with the ultimate goal of making them better cars. I heard a preacher make a similar analogy, and uh, he was a little more blunt. He said, you know, some of us are just dummies. But, you know, I thought that's really the perfect analogy. You know, we get rammed into the wall, and we think God is trying to mess us up when he's simply trying to make us better. He's trying to make us better Christians. He lets us run into the wall to identify our flaws, to show us things about ourselves, you know, that maybe we said we'd never do, and then, bam, we hit the wall. Or things we'd never say. Bam, we hit the wall. Or maybe attitudes we thought we would never have. Bam, we hit the wall, right? He wants us to see our own imperfections to show us that we're not like Him as much as we thought we were. He allows us to have trials that show us our need for Him. He allows us to go through trials that mold and shape us. He allows us to go through trials to avoid even greater trials. He allows us to go through trials to redirect us to new paths. You know, there are many goals that our Heavenly Father might have for trials. But rest assured, He's got a goal. And in verse 11, the writer points out one specific goal, which is to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Notice, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, there's that verb form again, paiduo, paiduo, trained by it. See, the goal is to help us develop more practical righteousness. We've talked a lot on Wednesday nights about how once you place your faith in Christ, you are positionally righteous, but our practical righteousness doesn't always conform to that. It should, and the goal as we go through our Christian life is to have our practical righteousness more accurately reflect our positional righteousness in Christ. And sometimes he uses trials to flesh that out. Peter, in this great passage about trials himself, said this, In this you greatly rejoice, uh, sounds a little bit like James, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, all of these passages about suffering and trials and tests, and certainly throughout the book of Hebrews, tend to, to come full circle back around to the return of Christ. Because ultimately, navigating life's trials is recognizing that we are just passing through this earth, 
This earth is sold under sin, but we're just strangers and pilgrims here. And we need to set our mind on the future, set our mind on things above, recognize the blessed hope that is coming back. Uh, that's one of the greatest keys to enduring suffering, is looking beyond the here and the now to the then and the there. Going back to James, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured. You've heard of the perseverance of Job. We talked about Job earlier. Here James is referring back to Job. And seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That's the goal. That's the goal. We may not always recognize what God is doing, but He's doing something. He's got our best interest at heart. You know, I used to do a ton of flying, and uh, way more flying than any human being should should have to do. And for a period of time, we lived in Illinois and in central Illinois, and inevitably, my connecting flights would go through Chicago O'Hare. Um, and no human being should have to go through Chicago O'Hare either. But anyway, I remember one time I was coming home from a trip, and the pilot and we were, we were to land in O'Hare. I was to catch a connecting flight and come to Peoria. And the pilot comes on as we're approaching O'Hare and says, due to a, a weather system of some kind, we're being diverted. No planes are allowed to land in O'Hare. And I thought, great. You know, it's one of those failed test moments, you know. Why me? Why now? It's been a long trip. Can't wait to get back. And during that season of my life, I was often flying home early on Sunday mornings to be in the pulpit at a church I was at on, on uh, Sunday mornings. Why now? Why me? But I reacted too quickly. Because guess what the next thing the pilot said was? We're going to be landing in Peoria, Illinois. And I go, yes! <laughs> And this diversion, this distraction, this storm that had come up actually redirected me to exactly where God wanted me, right? And that's the way trials are. You may not see it right away, but sometimes God gets you where he wants via a different route than you expected. Trials may be God's way of diverting you from Chicago to Peoria, which is only a slight improvement, but it's an improvement. So here's the review for today. Recognize that trials are a form of training. Respond with the right attitude when facing trials. And remember the goal of trials. So the next time, you know, you hear that annoying sound. Isn't that annoying? Would you like me to stop? Just remember, it's a test. God's testing you and molding and shaping you. Train hard with the right attitude. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage today. And just pray that we would really learn and grow from it. And Lord, just give us the wisdom to recognize trials and to respond appropriately when they come up. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone listening or here today in this place that doesn't know you that... That would be step number one. Before they can navigate this old world successfully, they've got to have a relationship with you. They've got to be part of the family. And they can do that only by faith in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, who died and rose again for our sins. And I pray that they would do that. If you've never trusted in Christ, you can do that even right now while you're watching or, or here. And Lord, for the rest of us, again, help us to be uh, trained by your discipline, not offended or hurt by it. 
uh, and help us to endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.